Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, thanks for joining us again today. Before we jump into our episode, I've got an opportunity that I think you all might be interested in. Scott and I are putting on a webinar on five ways to improve your writing. In this webinar, it'll be an opportunity for you to learn about why writing is really so important for the church and why we need to continue to be writing. You'll learn tips on writing from one of the church's most prolific authors and Scott McKnight, having been the author or editing over 50 books. You'll also receive immediately applicable practices to improve your writing. And last but not least, and this is really probably the um, a reason just to attend the webinar all in and all of its of itself, is that you'll have the chance to ask Scott some of your questions about writing. So if you're interested, this webinar will be Thursday, April 27th from 10 a.m to 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And we'd love to have you. Um, What you do to join the webinar is just go to seminary.edu slash kingdom writing, and you can sign up for the webinar there. Again, that website is seminary.edu slash kingdom writing, and you can sign up. We'll send you a link, and you can um, join us for this webinar. And uh, we'd love to have you and just add value um, to you know, to what you might be trying to do. Writing can be so difficult, and uh, Scott wants to be able to help you with that. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy our episode today. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on our episode, we have a conversation about the Good Samaritan... Scott, so you know it's been a couple of weeks since we've uh, had a, a conversation around uh, one of the parables that our MANT cohort is working on. Uh, real quick, you want to just update our listeners, uh, remind them what this project's about. You know what is the central um, thrust of, of parables in Jesus's teaching, and let them know who we have on the other line today. Yes, uh, yeah, we'll. I'll start with that. We have Deacon Godsey, who is a pastor and one of our students in the Master of Arts and New Testament cohort, an active participant and great in the cyberspace uh, world as well. And um, I think one of the most exciting things about having Deacon in class is watching him take what he learns in our classes right into a sermon series at his church. Uh, so that, that's been exciting for me to watch uh, as a non-participant, but as an outside observer. One of the things that I think is very important about seminary education is learning to write. Uh, Pastors and leaders in churches find themselves frequently needing to write something, either uh, in a bulletin or online or blogs. And sometimes seminaries teach a kind of prose that makes the prose of, of church leaders and pastors and seminary graduates nearly inaccessible. So we are working both on um, intellectual study and at the same time learning to write in more accessible ways. And Deacon is one of those who is a very good who is very good at accessible prose and wrote a, a really fine study of NT Wright um, and uh, is worked on his big mammoth volumes on Paul. But in a few weeks uh, on on the 
a Kingdom Roots podcast, we are going to do a, a, a webinar on writing, and I'm going to give some advice on writing. But um, for today, I want to call attention to the fact that our class is working on a book on the parables of Jesus. And we want to explain the parables of Jesus uh, as well as we can in light of top-level research, beginning with uh, the great book by Klein Snodgrass called Stories with Intent. And Klein was a much-valued colleague of mine when I taught at North Park, and he was at the seminary. But I always found opportunities uh, to speak with him, to be illuminating and wise. And his book on parables is just a majestic accomplishment. And so I'm asking the students to begin there, and then we're going to work on the central idea of imagine a world like this. Every parable uh, um, takes us into an imaginary world that upends our world and gives us a new vision for how to live in a world today. Not unlike the Pavensi children who got into Narnia and then found themselves rolling back out of the, the uh, wardrobe into a normal room and, and, and wanted to go back. And not one of us who have read that story have not wanted to go back with the kids into Narnia. And I think uh, parables are a Narnia-type experience. And one of the most important parables that Jesus ever told, uh, and maybe when I say important, I mean influential, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I thought I would, uh, I would read it uh, to get us started. And then I'm going to ask Deacon uh, to offer to us some explanations of what he has learned about this parable uh, both what it meant in the world of Jesus and how it connects to imagine a world, and then uh, what 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 value it has in the church. But here's how the parable begins. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. I'm reading from the NRSV. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, this is a very important one for me. The scribe is telling Jesus, what Jesus has been teaching. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. That's Jesus's response to the scribe. But wanting to justify himself, and this is where the parable really gets cool. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. That's an interesting expression. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And this is the expression for compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay whatever more you spend. 
Now Jesus uh, offers a question. This is often called the nimshal of a parable. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus said, the one who showed, or the, they said, the, the man said, uh, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. What a story that Jesus tells here. And Deacon, I'm just kind of, I'm going to uh, just open it up for you to kind of tell us the things that you found uh, in your study of this parable that you think are valuable for learning to interpret it. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorites. Um, I just think it has such incredible application uh, always, but it feels like, especially with some of the cultural dynamics we're experiencing now. Um, and yes, yeah, Snodgrass's book is an incredible gift um, to have so much information condensed in one place. Um, he does a great job of highlighting the uh, a number of different options for uh, how to look at this parable, what to consider, questions to ask. Um, <clears throat> I think he's also very helpful in condensing it down. Um, there are a lot of um, historical options that people have taken over the years. Some have viewed it sort of Christologically, like the Good Samaritan is somehow meant to be seen as Jesus. Um, you know, there are there are a bunch of different um, ways to look at it, but I, I do think his conclusion is the one that makes the most sense to me, especially given how the parable ends. And um, he just says, we conclude then that this parable is intended to show that love does not allow limits on the definition of neighbor. And I think that's about as clear uh, as it gets in terms of arriving at the foundation for what was the purpose for this parable. Now, um, I had emailed a bit. Go ahead, Scott. You know, Deacon, <clears throat> I wonder if um, our listeners uh, need to hear something about uh, the restrictiveness at times of this word neighbor. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, it, you know, the idea is you can love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So that neighbor becomes, in that text, largely my fellow Jewish um, patriots or my, my, my fellow Jewish friends uh, who happen to be on, in my party uh, politically and theologically and happen to be in my neighborhood, or they live in Galilee, not Judea, or they live in the diaspora and not the Holy Land. So that neighbor got to be restricted. Yeah. And, and so I think... I think that that's that's the point that you're making here is that neighbor uh, for Jesus gets expanded here. Yeah, he he refuses to allow us to, to kind of play those tribal games and arrive at those conclusions, um, which, yeah, at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of my understanding, at least, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding was that, you know, the people that were assumed to have access to the kingdom were wealthy, educated Jewish men. Um, healthy, educated, wealthy Jewish men. That those okay, were I would say really uh, he healthy, not necessarily wealthy. Uh, there okay. aren't very many wealthy, uh, but healthy males, and therefore their children and wives uh, at some level were incorporated 
Yeah. Uh, but uh, I would say the tribalism had to do with the various interpretations of the Torah and practices mm. so that, uh, you know, the Pharisees would practice a certain way and the Sadducees would ignore certain things <laughs> and the Essenes, other things were added. So the zealots, other, I, so you get these parties that yeah. are become tribes. Yeah. And, uh, and neighbor for each one of them would be defined differently. Yeah. And, and, and I, that's one of the things I so appreciate and and think is so relevant. I'm I'm not going to jump ahead uh, in the discussion, but we'll get there eventually. But the the application for now um, is, is so important. Um, but in order to get to the now, we have to start with where Jesus was, and and I and I do think that that this is what Jesus is trying to emphasize and trying to present is that we do not, as his followers, have the right or the privilege, nor should we want the right or privilege to limit who is a person that receives our love and our compassion and our mercy. Um, you know, Scott and I had emailed a little bit. I had listened to a, a, a video of somebody I won't name, um, but you know, they had read the parable and gave a message on this parable um, saying that it's been so classically misunderstood and thought that any kind of social application uh, was just completely out of bounds and um, that it didn't have anything to do with what Jesus was really saying in the parable, which to me was astounding. I, I just, I, I was dumbfounded that you could read this parable and come to the conclusion that it had nothing to say about how we treat people um, in, in our, in our world um, when that seems to be so blatantly and clearly what he's actually talking about. Yeah. Uh, that, and it's good for you to bring this sort of thing up because in the history of parable interpretation we have uh we become aware if we study it of how imposing our own theological ideas are on what we think a parable is about and this was one of the great contributions of um, people like ch dodd and joachim jeremias in the history of parable interpretation who said we have to anchor these parables in the world of Jesus, and not just in the world of Jesus, but into the very message of Jesus. So that means you've got to know what Jesus' message, his mission, uh, his vision. you got to know what all that's about before you can even begin to talk about what a parable means, because it has been so easy in both Protestant liberalism and Protestant evangelicalism to to find in a parable exactly what you want. So so my one of my questions here, uh, Deacon, I know you've got you've got some points here, uh, some things to say, is that in this story, this is a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I guess we can assume he's Jewish, um, and he gets beaten up by robbers. Uh, but why why call attention to uh, the triad of a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan? What is Jesus doing here? Well, um, yeah, I can tell you what I think he's doing. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are different perspectives on what to emphasize here. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that Jesus is, is pointing to those who his audience would have assumed. Um, they would have assumed that the, that the priests and Levites would have been respectable, uh, would have been um, keepers of the law. Um, you would think 
that they would see uh, see a half dead person lying on the side of the road, and that their commitment to loving God and loving people, as expressed in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus, would have moved them to action. Um, but it that doesn't happen, and instead, it's a person who is considered to be um, largely an enemy, um, uh, somebody who is largely rejected by um, the Jewish audience, which is a Samaritan. It's a, it's a complete turning on its head of what's anticipated and what's expected. You would never think that the Samaritan would be the one who would become the hero of the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but there's... It's Deacon, very- why? Let, let's, uh, let's do the best we can to understand why a priest and a Levite would do what they did. Yeah. Why, why do you think they, why do you think the priest and the Levite uh, do not help this half dead body? Well, the, this is one of the interpretive options where there's sort of this discussion of, um, and you can speak more to this than I could, but there's a, a you know, the rabbinical halakhic debate on, is Jesus talking here about um, the the Torah command not to have your body, uh, not to have yourself ritually defiled by touching or being near a dead body? Uh, yeah, call, it's it, called corpse impurity. Yeah, that yeah. you know that everybody knew that you weren't supposed to become impure, or that you would become impure by touching uh, a dead body. Um, and so there, the, the question is, is this a discussion of saying um, Jesus is uh, critiquing that approach and saying that the love command overrides any and all other previous commands? So, uh, yes, you're not supposed to become ritually impure and unclean by touching a dead body. But if this person is here suffering, the love command takes precedence over that. And so, okay, but now is, um, I think you've generalized, um, I'm saying that that's the discussion. Yes. uh, Okay. But here's the point I would ask is, is there something specific for priests and corpse impurity? Um, well, in other words, it, yeah, a Jew who who goes to Pesach or, or to Passover will do their best to avoid touching a gravestone. And in fact, there were people paid or there were obligations to paint gravestones white so that they could be seen so that people would not step on them and defile themselves and therefore be inadmissibly or they would become inadmissible for uh, a religious ceremony, uh, and which is the whole reason for going to Jerusalem. But priests have uh, have different uh, uh, obligations and a priest a priest is commanded in the old testament and therefore a, a levite because levites are wannabe priests um the priests are are commanded not to defile themselves with corpse impurity unless it's someone of nearest of kin so the so i think you could sit here and say man i really feel sorry for that priest he was obligated by law not to touch that body. And that Levite is just a follower of a priest. And he's going to do exactly what the priest does because he doesn't want to get in trouble with the establishment. 
So you have here, to me, a very interesting situation where Torah obedience uh, seems to put a person in a position where they're doing the wrong thing. I mean, do, do you see that? Well, yes, but that's, I think, you know, what that's the, uh, the amazing thing about what happens in the New Testament and what happens with Jesus. He doesn't just look at some of the, the stuff that's in the Torah and, and sort of tweak it. He completely changes it. And, and you know, the, the, the Jewish, even the cultural understanding of family has been completely overturned in Jesus' life, and and you've you've brought this up, and I didn't even uh, I wasn't thinking of this at all. But yes, the the expectation of the of the priest and the Levite would have been that they could only touch a person in that condition if it was a family member. And what Jesus is saying um, is that this person is now is a neighbor; they are family. Um, you know, I. I think that that Jesus is completely uh, he, he's not overturning by any means the law. He's showing how uh, they had misunderstood it and and that they had misapplied it. That they, yeah, I would I would put it. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And, and I think we could extend that by saying that the priest and the Levite considered their love of God. And I think this is the stereotype that Jesus uses. So we should not equate this with all Jews, all Correct. priests, or any Jews today, or yes. you know anyone. You know we got to be careful on that because Jesus is playing with Great. the stereotype. Here is a priest who knows the Torah, who knows the Torah for priests in particular, and who sees his love for God to be obedience to the law. And Jesus is saying, if you really love God you will actually show your love for this person in need because love of God that doesn't result in love of others is not genuinely love of God. Yeah. And, and it's breaking down those, those tribal, those sort of uh, those boundaries that we set or that, and that in this case were interpreted for the law to have set. Yeah. And, yeah. and Jesus is re completely redefining it. And, yeah. and showing them a different way how to live it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the priest and the Levite are sort of a stereotype of a person who knows the law and naively, uh, but uh, deconstructively, are are people who are shown not to be obeying the deepest will of God. But Jesus chooses instead of a stereotype of of the of the clean person, of the pure person, of the holy person, of the religious leader, he uses the exact opposite. Yes. He uses a Samaritan, and uh, I wonder if you want to draw anything out of that by choosing a Samaritan. Well, yeah, uh, I preached on this parable uh, last year because there was there was something that happened uh, in the news that completely confounded me. I don't know if you want me to share that as context yeah. or just. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So there was a story in the Washington Post about, and I won't name names because um, that's not the point, but there was a truck driver, a tow truck driver, who came across uh, a woman who was in need of assistance. And he, as a tow truck driver, had been called and he was going to have a customer. 
But when he got there, he saw that this woman's car had a Bernie Sanders bumper sticker on it. (laughs) And he made some very quick uh, conclusions about what Bernie Sanders supporters think and what Bernie Sanders supporters stand for. And he, as a non-Sanders supporter, made the decision on the spot to refuse this woman's service because he felt like, and he's quoted as saying, and I don't have the exact quote, but he's quoted as essentially saying, I prayed and the Lord told me not to help her. And I really felt uh, I really felt good because I made a stand and I stood up for what I believed that that this woman as a Bernie Sanders supporter just was going to want something for free. She was just going to be looking for a handout. And uh, I disagree with Bernie Sanders. And I think his supporters, uh, you know, are not worth um, my professional assistance. And so he rejects this woman as a customer and says that it's because the Lord told him not to not to serve her. And I was so astounded at, at that logic. And, and I came, you know, to this parable. And I, I thought the question was, okay, well, did the Lord really say that? You know, did the Lord really say in that moment, do not help this woman in need because she is a Bernie Sanders supporter? Um, and, and, and I come, can come to this uh, parable and I just think, well, here we have a very, very helpful uh, story that Jesus provides to gain insight into that situation. And in this well, story, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, um, well, let, let me tell another story alongside yeah, this, because it's going to set up what you're going to say next, I hope. I think <laughs> okay. There was, um, in South Africa, there was a, uh, a report came in from one of the settlements, uh, apartheid uh, segregated communities are near there of a car accident and the police and the emergency hospital care people realized where it was. And if my memory is correct, they either chose not to go or they took care of other things and they delayed. Well, when they eventually got there, they realized that the person who had been in the car accident was not, after all, an African, but was a white man. And his name it was David Bosch, who is one of the great missiologists of the 20th century. He wrote a famous book called Transforming Mission. I knew of David Bosch when I was doing my dissertation because he wrote a, uh, a famous book on the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I had read his book, but I had I did not realize the uh, significance of David Bosch in South Africa mm-hmm. at UNISA, the, the University of South Africa um, in Johannesburg. But as a result of the neglect of care because of the stereotype that this had to be an African and therefore we are in a very poor person, therefore we're not going to give them immediate care. David Bosch died, hmm. and and this became a part of the of the story, the legend of 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 apartheid itself, hmm. and what it was doing that these supposedly Christian Afrikaners, who are called in life to care for those who suffer, 
chose not to uh, care for someone whom they perceived as a stereotype of someone unworthy of care turned out to be one of their heroes or the heroes of the time. So we, we do have these stories. Mm-hmm. And the story of this truck driver or this uh, person not helping out a person is very similar. So yeah, yeah, and and it um, it reminds me and, and causes me to go back to the parable and and to look at um, you know one of the things that Snodgrass says is that he points out that there's no direct parallel passage uh, in the Gospels to to this particular story, but that. Uh, the language that's used is very similar to Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. But for me, this parable, I find myself um, just constantly going back to and and connecting it to the teaching and the logic that Jesus presents in uh, Matthew 25 when he talks about, um, inasmuch as you've not done it to the least of these, you've not done it unto me. Mm-hmm. And and in as much as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a there's a very consistent thread in Jesus' life and teaching and application of loving God and loving your neighbor that prioritizes, that that puts a special emphasis on putting um putting care and mercy and compassion into action for those who are vulnerable. Yeah. And, 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 here, I, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And here, here you have somebody who is despised and rejected by the immediate audience, who who is the who would never be considered a hero, um, being cast by Jesus as the hero um, in a way that would is scandalous for them to see yeah. this is a person that is actually the one being heroic. And at the end of the interaction, Jesus says, now go and act like that Samaritan in the story. And, yeah. and that is absolutely, um, I think, dumbfounding to them and revolutionary. Yep. Because and, Jesus- I, and I would you know, I would connect the passage not only to Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and it's it's happy to com- you know to connect mm-hmm. it to another parable, but also to that great teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. where Jesus is redefining neighbor yes. uh, uh, and saying your responsibility is to turn enemies into neighbors. Yes. And and the reason you do this is because God makes the sun to rise on all, not mm-hmm. just upon your neighbors. Yeah. And that, and I, that, I, yeah. I thought about that when I was, you know, interacting with that story um, about the tow truck driver. I thought, well, you know, well, God sends his reign on Bernie Sanders supporters and on Clinton yeah. supporters and on Trump supporters. Um, so <laughs> we don't get the option as followers of Jesus to say that person's not in my tribe, therefore I'm not going to help them. Yes, and I think that this is uh, this is the whole point of this parable. And um, I think that often Jesus's parables have a reversal moment where where the people listening think, oh, I'm I'm a lot better than that one. But <laughs> this one, this one, Jesus catches them earlier than late in the parable. Mm-hmm. He catches them right in the middle because he he uses a Samaritan who is a stereotype for someone outside the tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses a Samaritan and then immediately connects the Samaritan to all the right behaviors. Yes. 
And um, I was told recently by a, a pastor that he was preaching. Um, and in the sermon, he said, it's our responsibility as Christians to love all people, uh, including Muslims. And he got a very nasty mm. upbraiding uh, mm. out on the church in the church parking lot mm. because he had just affirmed ISIS and <laughs> and had, uh, you know, had had affirmed that Muslims are in the kingdom of God. And oh. he was a universalist and. And uh, I've heard this more than I've heard this more than once when people bring up Muslims. Interesting. I've said this many times and I've not yet been approached by anybody in a church about this. Maybe I'm a little too strong in my language for somebody. I'm not going to argue with you, <laughs> but but I don't I don't think it's very hard uh, for you and me as Americans, as Christians in America, uh, in privileged situations to say that a lot of Americans think Muslims are enemies. And I think Jesus, if mm -hmm. he were living today, very likely the, the Samaritan here would be a Muslim. Yeah. And, and, and I think that we, I, I told this story to my children when they were little, when they went to bed, I just told the story and I, I used it frequently. I used an African American man as the stereotype uh, that people often uh, think as somebody they should fear, mm -hmm. and and I I want to I want to do what Jesus did here. Yes, he uses a stereotype in order to subvert the stereotype, yeah. and in order to crush the elitism of the person who thinks, well, I I do things right. I would never do that. I yeah. would show mercy to someone in need. And here we go. Here's a story that shows that that we can use a stereotype, a Samaritan. And the people are, are saying, why would you use a Samaritan? And the point is, boom, yeah. that was the very point I'm making. You would have treated a Samaritan on the road the way the priest treated yeah. the, the half-dead body. It's brilliant yeah. how Jesus yeah. tells these stories. It is. And, and I'm, you know, I think of the, the, um, the use of the Samaritan, um, and, and how that applies today, um, when I preached on this parable, um, I told a modern retelling of it. I, so I read the parable and I preached on it. And then I said, okay, now let's, let's rewrite it for our time and context. So I wrote a story um, about, you know, similar length to the parable. And I just updated everything about it to make it relevant to Lawrence, Kansas. Um, and, and when it got to the the Samaritan, the, the character that I inserted was a black Muslim transgender woman. I could not think of anything more, um, you know, more reflective in our day of how people would have responded to a Samaritan in Jesus day. Yep. And and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, well, you, you should have made them an, uh, an illegal immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I said, okay, well maybe in the next retelling I can yeah, do that. Yeah. But, um, but, and I think that, that, you know, that's where it, it comes to exercising the prophetic imagination, yeah, yeah, um, good point. to yeah. say, uh, yes, 
there's a there's a specific context that Jesus is writing in and speaking to, and we need to understand that context first. But once we do, I think we're given freedom and permission, and actually that we that we have the responsibility to to exercise our prophetic imagination and and find ways to make this applicable and relevant to our situation so that it connects with people at the same kind of visceral level that it would have connected. Um, with Jesus' audience on, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, and so for me, that was the way I went about it, and and I was also struck by how this parable seems to be um, totally in line with um, the flow of Jesus' teaching, which gives great priority to actual behavior and action, and not mere belief. Uh, I, I think beliefs are very important. I think beliefs lead to action. I, I th- you know, I wouldn't be getting a theology degree if I didn't think belief mattered. But I think what we've done and what we've seen in our culture is we've made we've become so ideological that that we prioritize belief and one's ideas over actual behavior. Yeah. Uh, well, that yeah. person agrees with me at an intellectual level, so I'm just going to disregard their behavior. And yep. what Jesus constantly does over and over and over again is say, no, it, it matters what you do. Jesus doesn't say, go and believe likewise. He says, go and do likewise. Mm-hmm. And so our, our beliefs matter. Our beliefs are important. It's, it's good to have a substantive theological perspective. But if those beliefs and perspectives don't lead to loving your neighbor as yourself, then it's simply theology that's puffing us up. Yeah, yeah. Jazz, you there? Yeah, I am. And I got to say, I, I've just been sitting here taking notes. I've enjoyed this conversation uh, so much and had such a deepened perspective, I guess. I've never I've never seen you so silent. <laughs> I, I know, right? Uh, yeah, well, this one. I got, I have actually, it's funny you guys talk about the, um, uh, allusion to the the Samaritan to Muslims today. I've got a crazy story um, from the church I serve at at Parkview um, in relation to that, and then I'll, I'll let you guys see if you have any other closing thoughts before we wrap up. But uh, we were recently doing a food pantry drive to help stock the shelves of our local food pantries, and um, we have a large congregation, so there's a lot of people who come in and out that we really have no idea who they are, what their story is. Um, Um, where they're at in life. And there was a gal who walked into our church building after um, the weekend, and she had a bag of food, and she dropped it by, and she told the receptionist that... um, I'm here, I'm from your friendly neighborhood mosque, and I was at your service this weekend, and um, I was with my daughter who was doing a paper on comparative religions, and so we had to um, experience another religion's church service, and so we came to you guys, and I was just so moved. We were talking that weekend about the, actually the book of Leviticus that we were preaching through, and um, uh, talking about Moses and Tabernacles. And, and all of those things. And she found a lot of association, you know, also believing in Moses, of course, in some different ways, but but having that connection and being surprised by that. And then hearing us talk about the food pantry, she, she was so moved that she said, I'm never probably going to come back to another church service, but you need, I, I was so moved. I want you to have this. And I wanted to give um, through you guys to those in need. So, um, mm-hmm. 
Man, it, it is fascinating that you guys use that. But I guess mm-hmm. to wrap up, um, any closing thoughts that you guys want to share with our listeners on on what we've talked about today? Well, I've got to close with this. I mean, this is the context for what I call the Jesus Creed, is that uh, the Jesus Creed is given by Jesus to his followers to remind them, to force them, to uh, impress upon them, to see that loving God does not simply mean following Torah. Loving God means following the Torah of love, following the Torah of love in such a way that our love for others is a demonstration of our love for God and love for God that does not immediately respond to people in need or respond to people, uh, humans, is not the kind of love of God that God wants for his people. So Jesus gives the Jesus Creed because we religious people need it the most. Yeah. That's great. Deacon, Um, any closing thoughts? Yeah, just a couple real quickly. Um, I want to restate my um, commitment to the belief that, yes, it's important that we understand and root our understanding uh, in, you know, in the context and what Jesus is initially saying. But I, I, I again want to reiterate that I think it's incumbent upon us as pastors, if, if you're listening as a pastor or a teacher, um, to exercise some healthy, biblically informed prophetic imagination. Uh, and I think, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., was doing that when he spoke about this parable and moved beyond the individual circumstance to to say, you know, we're moved to ask questions, not simply about the man who was beaten on the road, but is there something systemically wrong with the road that we need to address um, in, in life's journey? Now, is that what Jesus is specifically speaking to? No, but can we exercise our prophetic imagination to move beyond individual circumstances to systemic realities, I think we can. And I well, think this that's... is this is precisely why Jesus told parables, Deacon. Yes. He he wanted to exercise the imagination of those who heard his stories to consider what this meant for the way they were living their life wherever it might be. So yeah. I to- I totally uh you know I, I don't know that I've ever used prophetic imagination here. You're capturing the language of Walter Brueggemann. Yeah. Uh, but that, yes, I, I totally agree with that. So, yeah, I, I just, I think that it's, um, it's healthy and necessary to do that. And, and, um, and lastly, I just wanted to say the, the one thing I, I slightly disagreed with Klein Snodgrass on was, um, he said that the parable doesn't tell us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I, I don't think it does in sort of a specific teachy way, but I actually think the parable does an incredible job of showing us what tangible love of neighbor looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very self-sacrificial of our time, of our energy, uh, mm-hmm. of our finances. It means putting aside uh, our fear or desire to protect our personal safety at times. It, it means mm-hmm. sacrificing personal convenience. All of these things are very tangible expressions of what it looks like to love your neighbor. And so Jesus doesn't teach on it or preach on it in a, in a specific, uh, in a specific way. But the example that he gives us of the things that the Samaritan does is a masterclass on 
here's what it looks like to love your neighbor in real time. It means, yeah. uh, it, it means self-sacrifice for the benefit of the other at your own expense and your own safety and your own convenience, yeah. no matter who the person is. Perfect. That's perfect. Man, couldn't end it a better way. Thanks, Deacon, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us as well. Uh, I hope that you have learned and been and as challenged as I have from listening to Scott and Deacon's conversation. And uh, we hope that you continue to join us in the coming weeks as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 